Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Terror Talk. Hi, everyone. This is Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas. And I believe it's Hanukkah week, too. So yep. for all of you celebrating holidays, happy holidays. Yeah, so this episode is uh, dropping on Christmas Day. So we understand that if it takes you a minute to to listen to this because the topic is uh, more difficult, most likely, and not exactly, um, well, not exactly perky, but... And the know. holiday season oftentimes isn't for many. That's right. And so uh, we did not believe we were going to take a break from dramatic stories for the holidays necessarily although you could listen to the shrink chat show for a lighter a lighter side of what we do although sometimes we get pretty ranty when serious over yeah. there yeah sometimes. sometimes we do we try to make our rants a little bit lighter but well they're a little more off the cuff that's true. when the rants happen i don't always know that a rant is going to happen Sometimes Kathy will just I just come in, in with a rant yeah. and swing in and I'm and I'm the dot I'm the bob and the weaver. Yeah. <laughs> so today we are going to discuss uh, the story behind Unbelievable uh, and the show as well. Unbelievable is um, a web series, an eight episode web series on Netflix starring Tony Collette. Merritt Weaver and Caitlin Deaver. It's about a series of rapes in Washington and Colorado. It came out in September. Uh, I also want to talk about the book. I happen to read the book mm -hmm. and it's got a, you know, it's got something to offer for sure. It's the whole um, story was reported originally in a 2015 article called An Unbelievable Story of Rape, which you can Google and read yourself. So that's the source material. It was by T. Christian Miller and Ken Armstrong, and they originally published it by um, on ProPublica and the Marshall Project. And the the series, the book, the article have all gotten a lot of attention and um, have been well done, in my opinion. I mean, I what it would be good to start with. Let's just talk generally about what we thought of the series. Maybe what I'll talk a little bit about what I thought of the book and maybe the differences, and go from there. And then we'll get into some serious topics that are brought up. So, the series, I think Kathy and I are on the same page with this. <laughs> is that the first couple of episodes are pretty difficult to deal with. I, you know, I had a lot of hesitancy around um, even wanting to watch the series just because this is a really difficult topic. Um, and rape is just always, I think for most people, I don't think I'm only speaking for myself, but it's just really difficult to watch unless there's some sort of revenge in there for me anyway. Right. So I was really dreading it, but I, but I also knew it was good. And then when you said, well, let's do a series on it, I'm like, okay, I'm going to can do this force myself so the first couple episodes were really hard but then when the detectives come in it brings life to it and hope to it and then you you really have different uh, i i had a really different reaction to it once it got to about the third episode i mean the whole series is great just absolutely and i think through. i had warned you too you did. i had watched it first so I, so I sort of said like just take breaks <laughs> in the first couple of episodes you know we all have so it, that being said if you haven't seen it um 
it's a huge trigger warning for sexual assault. Yep. Because, and I'll tell you this, it, it's an emotional story. So what it succeeds in doing very well is it brings up emotions in you when you watch it. So the first couple of episodes I thought were an excellent representation and a, a representation of how the viewer could feel a little bit, if you haven't suffered that kind of trauma, to feel a little bit what it's like, the relentlessness of trauma in the body, in the mind, because that's how it felt the first couple of episodes is mm. her, she relived, basically she relives the rape. And, and we as viewers relive it with her. So mm. it's not, it's not chronological. She'll, she'll, the way she remembers things, you remember them while she remembers them. So it's often in fits and starts how we mm -hmm. remember trauma, right? So that's a very interesting way to pull the viewer into what it might possibly be like to be in her shoes. Just a little taste. Yeah, and I also think that what they did well was they when people disbelieve things like this, you know, we're very impressionable based on how a situation is presented to us. And when I say us, mostly the public, right? But even in clinical settings or in legal settings, the way an argument or the way a story is told, we, we become very impressionable based on that. And I think what the first couple episodes did was instilled some doubt. If you didn't know the story, they did a really good job at making many people go, well, wait a minute. I mm -hmm. thought this was supposed to, but now they're bringing up this stuff and yeah, maybe mm -hmm. she, maybe she is like, and this is really what happens. And later on, I'll talk about a couple cases I, I'm working on where how this stuff is presented and why um, victims of assault don't step forward is for this reason. And so I think that they, the way that they made the doubt um, so impressionable, I thought was really great. Yeah. I, I, that's an excellent point. The The main character in the story, at least in the first couple of episodes, is an 18-year-old female who is raped by, um, by well, her, her rapist at this point. We don't know who it is. And so that's your emotional way into the story. And there's many things that are unique about this case, but the, the one thing that's overarchingly unique is that she makes a statement about her rape and ultimately retracts it and then is ultimately acute, um, charged with making a false statement. And so, and that is extremely unique in the criminal justice system where they would actually charge someone after that fact. Um, and what Kathy's alluding to is that you believe it happened, but then they instill some doubt in those first couple of episodes. So you, you, I think it's a way to try to understand where the two initial police officers that interviewed her were coming from. It's like to try and understand how, like you said, we're all very suggestible. And then you hear one thing or another and like, oh, well, her statement in the fourth story, fourth time she told the story, she said this. And the second time she told the story, she said that. And then they make that so that she's lying. What I, yeah. And to add to that, and I think this is what happens a lot of times 
and it's actually happening happening on a case I'm working on right now, is if a family member steps in and says, well, let me tell you about mm-hmm. this person and why they might be, I mean, she doesn't directly say this, but she basically says she's lying. Yeah. So what ends up happening in, in, in part of the story is that, and I, I read the book. Her so, old foster mom. Yeah, right? yeah. It's her previous foster mom. Um, and at first in the book, in the real case, they don't actually know who gave the statement, but then it's later found out it's, you know, it's a, they keep it private for a long time, but the foster mom, her previous foster mom comes forward and says to the police, like not even asked, she calls on purpose and says, by the way, you need to know that she has a history of lying. And that starts them questioning her, mm-hmm. which is very interesting because uh, It's like if you look at the way she was interviewed, you know, after reading the book, it's like if you look at the way she's interviewed, what she said, how she said it, the different way, the different people she talked to, it's, it doesn't read like a false statement at all. And then all of this doubt comes in and, and it plays out, you know, the story plays out. But that being said, I, before we get too far into it, I, I want to mention that I also, uh, so I read the book, which I just mentioned actually, but what I thought was so interesting about the series and then about the book is that the series does what it's supposed to do, which is it brings you into an emotional story, which I think is the best piece of, you know, a dramatized true crime story is they, you know, you, you go in and you have empathy for a a lot of different parties and then your brain tries to figure out what happened, who's right, etc. The book attacks it from a different point of view. There's one similarity in that the um, the series takes the same structure as the original article, which was to go back and forth and follow kind of two stories. Um, the book is very interesting because it doesn't try to pull you in emotionally at all. It's not like a dramatized series but it's still really gripping because what you get in the book that you didn't get in the series is one you get the true story but you also get um there's a whole chapter i think it's kind of near the beginning that's told from the rapist point of view and sort of how he started, when he started, how he felt about it, the different things he did cuz they all know all that now. Mm-hmm. So what they did is they put themselves in his shoes and then told his story and about like sort of his first rapes and how he first got into this and the stuff that happened like way before these rapes happened. So that's pretty interesting. It also gets into um, the different police officers that are featured and sort of their background and what their histories are and telling that story. And I think the other thing that the uh, books can do that it's harder for uh, drama series to do is they can go from macro to micro. So there's some interesting things in the book about um, the macro issues, like talking about um, VICAP, the, the start of VICAP, and talking about uh, sex offenders in general and sort of um, patterns that they see in sex offenders. Uh, oh, and there's a whole there's a whole part where they talk about the development of the rape kit. 
you know, they didn't used to have rape kits in hospitals and like who developed it and how they started doing that and how they uh, like immediately saw um, better. They immediately began to catch people faster, basically. So stuff like that you got in the book, which I thought was really interesting, like the context around the criminology of it. Um, so I would recommend the book. Um, you can get it in an audio book, right? I mean, yeah. you know, if and there's a lot about sex offenders in there. Uh, it, it was interesting in that way. And then also, I think like Kathy, I really enjoyed the miniseries too. Yeah, I, I actually ended up binge watching it, which is not really a show you can binge watch. But I found myself once I got to the third episode, it was like a Sunday and it was raining. I'm like, I'm just going to lay here and finish it all. And, and I became so attached to Merritt and um, Tony Collette and their portrayal of these detectives and I think just in the climate we're in, the political climate that we're in and the Me Too movement and all that and watching these two women come in and go, you know, fuck this. Mm -hmm. This is this is this is not okay. And and how they used their um skills and their professionalism, but also the way that they built rapport with these women versus the way the male detectives or officers mm -hmm. who had zero capacity for rapport. They were about getting a job done and checking boxes. And these women, there's a relatability when, you know, any, it, it's not that men can't be um, victims of a crime like this, but there is sort of a sisterhood around this. And I think mm -hmm. they did a good job at doing enough of that without overdoing it. Yeah. They still kept their professional role. They didn't minimize the intelligence of their, roles like it was just really well balanced so you felt like they brought that sisterhood piece in but in a in a way that they were still believable as detectives i think even with the men they didn't make it they didn't make it um like a caricature no and th he apologizes at the end and was like i shouldn't yeah. have i should not be in the role that i'm in he, they made him very human mm -hmm. but and that's what i liked about it. they didn't really i mean the other asshole was another story, but the guy that the the main detective, he ends up like demonizing himself because he realized he had made an awful mm -hmm. mistake. And I like that they showed that humanity in him. Yeah, and it's 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 also interesting. Of course, drama series are collapsed, meaning the time is collapsed into what seems like a shorter time. Um, what I think you get a real understanding of in the in the true story is that. They worked on this case for a super long time and there were other rapes and what you find out is that there are rapes in, in different states. And so what ends up breaking the case is that one of the female detectives that was brought on just six weeks before they caught the guy. So she was really only in the end um, and she's widely interviewed as well. And she talks about, you know, these guys were working on this case forever mm -hmm. and I came in you know, and worked on it for six weeks and we found him. And that's not about me being fabulous. That's just about me being that catch linchpin. At the end. Yeah. yeah, that mm -hmm. linchpin in it. Because what ended up happening was they her husband works on the police force mm -hmm. in that different county and came home one night and that's a true story and said, Hey, um she was, you know, bitching probably about her day or talking about mm -hmm. her day and frustration. And and he's like, Hey, you know what? That sounds like, you know, check this case out. That's in my, you know, my world, because um, it sounds really similar. And then, you know, her first reaction is like, yeah, whatever. Okay, 
you know, night, babe. Yeah. <laughs> and then she goes in the next day, it checks it out. It's the same thing. And that ends up being the, the connection. And what they, what they talk about is how, you know, police departments didn't really talk to each other. Right. And we've, we've actually, that's come up a lot on yes. the show in older cases. Cause yeah. we do a lot of these. And why, why criminals became so prolific because right. they, they knew how to work that system. Yeah. I think, um, so we mentioned it a little bit a few minutes ago, but the reactions to trauma is sort of, I think, a thing we should probably talk a little bit about. Uh, I wanted to mention that in the original article uh, and in the book, and I'm not sure, maybe you can remind me if they do it in the series, but Marie is her name. It's actually her middle name, but mm-hmm. the vict- the 18-year-old victim that becomes the center of the Netflix story is um, she was, it's important to know that she was also a foster kid by the time she was six or seven. Um, she doesn't remember a whole lot. She doesn't know if she went to kindergarten. She remembers being hungry and eating dog food for food. So she was a victim of severe neglect. And she was also sexually and physically abused in her childhood, had been in foster care. And by the time she gets to the point where she is raped, she's living in subsidized housing. She'd, she'd had a good one, good foster mom that really helped her out. You know, she was on the mend. In other words, she'd been in group homes, you know, she'd been in like 10 or 11 foster homes. And this was all interesting to me because this happens to be a population that I'm working with right now. And so it's very familiar. And for those who work outside of this, um, type of population. It's it's really familiar. It's a kid who suffered all three abusive, you know, sexually and physically abused and neglected. So all of it, and then was in you know removed from her family, put in group homes, and then kind of failed out of ten or eleven foster. Uh, care families and then by this time she's living in her own independent housing which is a huge deal she's got a job which is a huge deal um and she's having a very difficult time in life but surviving and and striving towards making something of herself which is incredibly unique um in those that have suffered and gone through what she's gone like a real survivor and then i'm just struck by and then this happens when I watched this and I watched, you know, we talk about the different reactions to trauma. Mm -hmm. A lot of times when people have been through this amount of complex trauma, you see, which, you know, is lots of different trauma added up over time with very little uh, reprieve in between. And it sounds like that's really what her life has been made up of. It doesn't shock me the way that I, assessed her when she was confessing was this really blunted sort of unaffected state, which is that survival mechanism, what she's learned to do just kind of go through the motions. So even when she was retracting and then admitting and all of this stuff kind of going back and forth, I almost feel like she was on autopilot. Mm -hmm. She wasn't really in control that's what it didn't feel like it to me. It wasn't that she was playing a game or, mm-hmm. I mean, clearly it, she wasn't, no. but she was so used to just going with what the system told her to do. Mm-hmm. So she became a victim of the system and then she was vilified for it. So 
when you see people who go through this sort of complex trauma, I think those of us who haven't experienced that expect to see someone who's can't hold themselves up and they're just a, a crying mess or they have, um, or they're, I don't know, expansive or whatever, but they're typically or shut down and catatonic, yeah, not speaking at all, different things. She's just kind of flat. Like there was no life left and she was just sort of going with whatever. And they saw that as, well, she's being this little smart ass and yeah. she's yeah, playing with yeah. them. Yeah. I think she went with her natural instinct to tell the truth and be a survivor yeah. and and fight back a little bit because what ended up happening so I don't so those of you who may not have been through a case like this as a victim or um or a police officer which mo- you know many of us have not is that uh and I learned this from the book is and and it makes sense we all watch a lot of you know procedural type of shows these days but it really hit home with me that she told her story to the cop on the scene. Then she told it to another cop on the scene. Then and she, she told to write it, it then out. She, then she, that was the f- actually then that by the time she was writing it out, this really struck me in the book. The written statement was the fifth time mm-hmm. she was supposed to tell the story, which I don't know. I don't know if the series really hit home for me when this this particular point. But what happens in the series, I believe, is that. On the fifth, when she's told to write it out, she says, you know what? I can't do this again today. I'm going to take this yeah. home and write it, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure it hit home that that was the fifth time she was try- and t- trying to tell that story. And I think some of us watching that would have been like, what? Why not just write it down now? You know, why do you oh, got to take I was a break? Ex- I don't know. I was exhausted for her when they got to that I think point. a lot of people might not, might not. You know, I think we watch these series a lot of times and sometimes we sort of say like, don't say it, don't do this, don't do that, you know, but we just don't know what it would really be like Mm. to be in that. You know, she had been raped the night before for four hours. Right. And they just need their story. They need to have their facts. And they need to have the facts. And being, so the fact that she was a sexual abuse survivor and a neglect and physical abuse survivor, it makes absolute sense to me that she would go through all of this and then realize that her life was going to radically change. Maybe that she was scared that she was going to get kicked out of her housing, that she was going, you know, that people were going to look at her differently, that she wasn't going to be able to have a job, you know, all of this. And then she retracts her statement it kind of makes sense to me that that would be a trauma reaction that she retracts her statement because, Mm. because of everything she had been through and then to go through this and then to go through all of these interviews and sort of then you're coming out of the initial um, shutdown denial, the shock. I think, I think it's like when you come out of shock after something horrific and you kind of, it sinks in what's what it's going to do with your life. Mm. And because of her previous experiences, I'm just kind of thinking hypothetically that Mm. if I'm looking at her, like I would talk with a client, I'm thinking that is absolutely one of, you know, the top three reactions in that moment is to go, I'm out. Like, I'm sorry. I didn't want to, 
I don't want to be doing this right now. Mm -hmm. It's almost the denial stage of grief that she moved into. Like, Mm -hmm. no, 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 I I can't, I can't do this. I kind of get it from a, if I look at the trauma piece of this and, and, and what we're talking about with everybody's different, you know, reactions are different. I I totally see that. I think for me too, um, I see, I felt that exhaustion when she got to the writing part, I really empathize with that. And I was like, oh my God, if that was me, I, I would have done the same thing. Yeah, I, almost, I might have pieced out earlier. <laughs> I don't know. It was hard. I almost wonder if some of it too was just the, she was so exhausted and that she in some ways was gaslighted a little bit. And so when, and we've talked about this in other situation other episodes where people's realities become questioned and how many times throughout the history of her and this goes back to what you were saying to shannon the trauma is how many times she was told that her experience wasn't what actually happened Mm -hmm. so she sort of learned to just go with authority Mm -hmm. in some ways of what you're saying too it's just easier like if i just go with this um, sure, whatever. Sure, is that what you want to hear? Whatever knows, just yeah. lets me get out of this. Because who knows what reactions? You know, who knows if you know? Ten years prior, she tells somebody that she's being sexually abused, and they didn't believe her. Like right. I don't know her personal experiences in that, but she clearly has no faith in the system. No, and it's and why would you? No, I mean, why would she? Just given the what I the little I do know about her history and the fund of knowledge I have about what generally speaking happens to everyone in the system and the different reactions. I mean, that's a really common reaction to not trust anybody in the system, even care workers that are coming to help you, you know? So I could see how any little bit of, and plus, I mean, it just happened. She's exhausted. She probably, you know, hasn't eaten. She hasn't taken care of herself in any way. She hasn't, you know, ugh, it's just... I can understand all of the different reactions and mm-hmm. I guess, and it, and it goes a little bit in the book in a different context, not necessarily about Marie, but again, with one of those macro conversations in the book, they talk a lot about the different reactions to trauma and how uh, well-informed police officers know that and they see, and they can speak to how the variety of reactions they get from victims. And this is just... I think the other piece too that we haven't really talked about is, and maybe we have in a roundabout way, is just that sense of learned helplessness. Mm-hmm. So she um, goes into the situation with the cops and this happens and she's just learned through all of her life experiences that no matter how hard she works, something is thrown at her and it just, um, she loses all chances to thrive. Mm-hmm. And so I almost feel like her false confession was a bit of a self-sabotage too. Sure. I could see that. Yeah. I could see a lot of, I could see that. I could see that absolutely playing into it. You know, all of a sudden your core beliefs come crashing down on you of, you know, I, I'm, I'm a victim. I, Mm -hmm. I can't, I can't get a break. Mm -hmm. I, I can't make this happen. And those kinds of things, what, you know, not necessarily true, obviously, but cause she survived a lot. It just comes crashing down on you in that moment. And then you make this, again, we're just theorizing. I don't know anybody in this case, but it's like you make this assertion of, oh, never mind. No, it was all lie, just to get out of the room. Yep. It's like what we've talked about before where they'll say like, yes, I did it. Okay. Like, like the Central Park Five. Yeah. We talked about With that. confessions. It's like, I think statements are the, are similar in that way where 
it's like, okay, I'm done with this. How do I get out of it? And you're just, and that's why I was sort of saying like a trauma reaction because it's fight or flight. It's mm-hmm. like, if I just say it wasn't true, will you leave me alone? Yep. <laughs> of course, she didn't know what that would start, but then, you know, right. it ends up being okay in a way yep. although she loses her housing and her job and she's completely vilified and all of her friends yeah and family because everyone believes that she they they believed the truth and then they believed the lie that mm-hmm. she told uh we're gonna take a break and come right back we're we're gonna get into um more of the criminology around um uh, mark o'lear's case and I think some other topics are those that we just haven't gotten to rape, sexual assault, um, talking about true and false statements and, and maybe um, how they look the same. So we'll be right back. While we take a break, go follow us on Instagram at terror talk podcast, Twitter at talk terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween all year long. If you prefer email, it's terror talk podcast at gmail.com. So reach out. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes or check out our Patreon page. We upload new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. Keep coming back, but first stick around for more of our show. Hi, we're back. This is Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. We're discussing uh, the case and the series uh, Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, we were going to talk a little bit about, I think, um, Kathy and I were speaking before the show, and I know you were saying something about true and false statements sort of looking alike. Well, it, there's absolutely no way to, just by sinning with someone, can we with 100% certainty say that we know the answer to Mm -hmm. whether their confession is true or false. And obviously in this, with this um, situation, you know, she comes forward with one statement and then she retracts it. And again, they're caught with like, well, which one is the truth? Even as the audience, which one is the truth? And in our work as clinicians and I do evaluations and I just recently did one and I'm working on a case right now, um, and this little boy's was um, almost going to go to foster care, but after I evaluated him, I didn't see any reason for why the biological father should at least have custody of him. Um, it's a parental alienation case, so the mother's side is saying, "Well, dad's planting these seeds. This abuse did not happen." Da 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 da. So part of my work now that I've been appointed as the primary clinician after evaluating. So what a lot of people. Um, should know is you don't ever evaluate after you treat, but you can certainly evaluate, you can treat after you evaluate. And the reason for that is evaluations can't be biased. So if you are already treating someone and you evaluate them, then it can be, it can certainly be biased. So after I evaluated him, got back to the court and the mother's side, you know, mom came to me afterward and was like, because I had broken down the trajectory of his trauma in my letter and her reaction was, well, haven't you ever heard of false accusations? And, and I said, certainly, I certainly have. And I said, and let me be clear in what my role is here. My role is to initially evaluate your son, which is what I did. And through that primary evaluation, I found what he was telling me in that moment 
to be true. And even if it wasn't true, I didn't find any reason in that moment to remove him from his father because that would have actually caused more harm. So my job now is to observe and treat and try to help this kid get healthy. I'm not so caught up in the details of whether mom's right or mom, or dad's right. The reason why I say this is our clinical judgment is only as good as a flip of a coin. Mm -hmm. So our job is not always to go, okay, well, is mom's side right or is dad's side right? It's to go, okay, this is what I'm experiencing from this kid in this moment and how do I keep him stable and healthy? And that sometimes means that I have to make an executive decision in that moment. Mm -hmm. But nobody can go to bed at night. No evaluator can go to bed at night and go, I listened to that person. Let me tell you, that's true and that's not. That is absolutely impossible. And people do it all the time. And people do it all the time. <laughs> and sometimes we're forced. And now as his treating clinician, how I, I said this to mom back in the email was, is moving forward, I need to let you know what my role is. My role is I'm not a custody evaluator. I'm not an attorney and I'm not a judge. My role moving forward now is to help him stabilize and work through so he doesn't keep getting thrown back into this trauma. Yeah, well, but somebody it, has to have the interest of the child. And that's heart. what I, and, and what I said yeah. to her was, unfortunately, in these cases, the, the parent's anxiety oversee it, it takes over and the child's needs are overseen by the parents anxieties and and the need to win so i'm asking you as as the mother if you care this much to not get caught up in the facts and to help me stabilize him so this our work gets really complicated when it comes down to which side are we supposed to believe and at this point where i am with this boys i'm not really invested in either mm -hmm. i'm invested in in helping him through this trauma so I know this is sort of a long-winded story, but I'm kind of pulling it back to our work as clinicians, which is we're oftentimes going to be presented with cases that are filled with facts, your side, my side, and the truth kind of thing. And we have to be able to weed through that and really look at what the bigger picture is. And our job in this is to stop that perpetuation of the trauma. Yeah. And I, I you know, something comes to mind while you're talking is that trauma victims are not linear. They're absolutely not. So, so, you know, when we're watching someone and, and I'm, I'm trying to take like an audience perspective or, or an uninformed, interested audience perspective in the sense that if you're watching her talk about these things, um, the, the Marie from our, from our unbelievable story, and you're seeing the holes and you're seeing her contradict herself and you're seeing that in the first time she told the story, it's, it's you know, a pink this. And in the fourth time she told, tells the story, it's purple or whatever it is, they're Trauma victims are rarely linear, meaning they we we don't tell stories from one to ten or from A to Z, because part of the clinical work with a trauma victim, and it sometimes takes years, is putting together an, a linear narrative. And if I could if I could strongly push out one point, is that it can take me a couple of years to work with someone. And it can be very healing to put together a narrative for themselves of what happened to them. But I can tell you that you you sit the first six months in session and it's all over the place. It's not linear. It doesn't track, which is a word we use a lot. Like the story doesn't track. And so for them, so I was really struck by that the first thing when you're a victim of sexual assault that you have to do is tell your story a hundred times, like mm -hmm. within 
24 hours, 48 hours over the next several weeks and months. And you have to, you are forced, if you want justice, you are forced to tell your narrative over and over and over and over again, and then punished if it's not linear, and it's not going to be linear. And so this makes sense to me of why sexual assault cases are not prosecuted, not won, all of that, because, you know, it just, it doesn't make, it's, it's counterproductive. And I'm not saying I know the solution to that. I'm just saying don't expect the narrative to make sense. Well, and my my point too to the court was why does why does this why does the burden of proof fall on this boy? Right? You know, like why is it not on the parents mm-hmm. because his story for the most part is 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 quite um I don't know if linear is the word, but there have been, you know, when I was reading through like a lot it of- Like it tracks, it comes together. Yeah, it tracks, but there are also points where they're like, well, why was he kind to this family member if that's allegedly the person who's abusing him? And I'm like, because- Power and control. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. the fact that that, that yeah. is alarming to the court, I'm like, that's actually how it works, guys. Yeah, it's fascinating, the- you know, yeah. Yeah. So we um, sometimes I think, we forget it's a specialty <laughs> that we know a lot about. Right. Right. That and not I, everybody does. And this is where it's really um, it's really, really disconcerting when you're a, a, when you do legal work um, as a clinician, because the courts look at things very, very much from content and they don't understand the underlying components as to why he may walk up to his abuser and give him a hug. They yeah, think they, that, the, oh, then, mm-hmm. then clearly the abuse didn't happen. And it's yeah. like, oh, yeah, that's yeah. just so not this case. Right. And I understand because it, a, a layman only knows, like, they only know what they see. Right. They only know what they understand. And it doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense. And I totally get that. And I, and I, sometimes I would like to be blissfully in that point where, where I don't know, where I don't see that because it's, it's devastating to see scenes like that where you where you see kids hug their abuser or what have you. It's devastating. And then the court holds it against that. the child. Like, well, That's see, right. then you weren't abused. Behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's kind of this blunt instrument around just watching what someone does. We have this culture, right, of, well, you know, actions are stronger than words. We have all these little, you know, memes and sayings and things. But when they when it comes down to it, it really it's that particular thing in this moment. It's like really destructive mm-hmm. that our culture is like, well, if you don't, you know, if you if you say it and don't believe it, da da da. You know, there's all of this because mm-hmm. I just see this in my mind. I obviously don't know um, your your client or your evaluatee, mm-hmm. um, but you know, I just see a little boy who's just doing what they need to do. And Marie is the same. She's like, she's just doing what she needs to do in the moment to survive. Right. And she's getting tripped up by all of her trauma and all of that history. And she just wants them to know what happened to her so that they can catch the guy. Like mm-hmm. it's that simple. And then it gets just, it just devalues into yeah, really a shit show for her. Yeah. And I think for most going back to what you were saying, why it's so difficult for victims of sexual assault to, to speak up is because it's just so easy to discredit them mm-hmm. and the burden of proof always fall falls on them. Mm-hmm. And I, and it, that's so unfortunate, you know, when people say, Oh, you know, all these women who have stepped up with false confessions and it's like, wow. And we're ignoring the 99% who haven't stepped up. And when they have, they've been vilified. Mm-hmm. I was watching, um, 
Charlize Theron was on The View the other day because, you know, she plays um, in the new film. She plays. Bombshell? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Megan Kelly. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, she was ta- she was talking in reference to that statement of, you know, women doing these things for attention. And she goes, you know, there is no gain no gain for Mm-mm. a woman to step up and declare this, whether it's false or true, she will be the one who's vilified. So there's absolutely no reason to your that our automatic thoughts in these cases should never be. Is she telling the truth? Yeah, it should be. She's telling the truth unless there's a real reason why she we should believe she isn't. Mm-hmm. But she's like, there's no personal gain for these women to step up. Half of them end up losing their jobs, their lives, their friends. Their yeah. so I think that it's there's this misconception that it's really popular now for women to step up and make this drama, you know, around these cases because they want money and they want attention. The amount of bravery and courage it takes to step up and be a part of a movement. And to say, hey, this happened to me, there's nothing cowardly, there's nothing bullshit about that. But it's become a part of pop culture to be like, well, it's just another person stepping up and being yeah, maybe maybe that's a dismissiveness of the internet culture or the Possibly. social media c- culture because of course the social media culture, internet culture, whatever forums, etc. You know, there's a lot of people just shooting the shit and staying saying stupid things and having fun and shooting off their mouth and all that and i think it's difficult to with all the noise for the average person to distance that from victims or people who are saying this happened to me and then it gets kind of blended into social media and culture and memes and everything and it gets distorted and then people outside of that go "Ugh, i'm just gonna dismiss all of that that's right forgetting that there was a victim at the beginning of the story right and i think that happened in this series where there were victims and i should say there were more victims than marie and what they ended up doing was connecting them all and then figuring out that they had a serial rapist right and then going forward from that, I wanted to play actually a clip of the real life, uh, one of the real life female detectives um, real quick. And in this clip, what happens is the interviewer asks her, they start to talk about, uh, did you know that this case was going to be a big deal and that it was going to be written about and that it was sensational in this way. Like when you were working on it, did you know that it was going to become mm-hmm. this? Do you know she, which, which detective this was? Um, I'll look it up as I'm, as I'm blabbing. Um, I think it's the one that's played by Merritt Weaver. Okay. In fact, I know it is, um, whose name is escaping me right now. So maybe you can look it up while I, while I talk, but, um, the actual de- detective's name, uh, no, but to answer your question, oh, it's the okay. one played by Merritt Weaver. Okay. Um, so they ask her to, um, why, why did, and then she says, yes, sorry. She says, yes, I did kind of know. And I even considered, doing some writing of my own on it. And then the interviewer asks her, you know, why, why, why did you, what was it about this case that you knew? And then uh, this is her answer. Karen Duvall. Karen Duvall is the real person's name. Okay, here we go. I think that like um, as a female and the reality that, so you have these attacks, these surprise attacks and there's so much background information behind a majority of them. Yeah, maybe one was 
it only took a few days for him to identify, you know, locate his target and attack the target and be done with it. But say, like, the golden victim was stalked meticulously for, um, since like, you know, months, like August or something before he finally made the attack in January. So I was very um, intrigued by all the, all that went into his attack prior to the crime, uh, the, the attack itself. So I just, I just was intrigued by that, that serial element of, you know, the stalking part. And even when he was interviewed, he 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 said that um, it wasn't about necessarily the the assault and the attack itself. He said it's the hundreds, thousands of hours that he put into stalking, fantasizing, playing all this out, and then you know the the assault is only you know an hour to four hours, whatever. So that's what she was. I thought that was interesting in that it really. <laughs> It speaks to the fact that she's a criminologist, right? It mm -hmm. just speaks to the fact that um, what's interesting to her is more about the serial part of it because that's what would help in her work, right? right. Is understanding that perspective. That's from an interview from um, a local news outlet, uh, Nine News, that did an, a longer interview with her. Um, I can't speak to the interview. They were trying to get TV clips, so <laughs> it's not the best interview ever. But the uh, but that part of it was interesting. Like, why did you think it was going to be a big deal? And I guess to them, it was a big deal because he was unique in that way. Mm -hmm. That he had different. He also had different profiles and stuff like that. Did you see that a lot in your work with sexual offenders? Where and I know that you have, so I'm obviously asking a loaded question. Mm -hmm. But because we've talked about it previously, where. It's the obsession. Um, I, I certainly saw a lot of not only the obsession, but the rehearsal. Yeah. And they would also rehearse with, and this is why it gets tricky when, when someone who has, who's borderline offending goes to see a clinician who isn't forensically trained because they might be missing the fact that this person's rehearsal is something that they're, they're doing with the therapist and these fantasies are actually moving into more dangerous. We, we would actually stop um, if, if we would stop them in sessions, mm -hmm. if they would do that just because that rehearsal was, they were, they were preparing in their mind. It was almost like relapsing weeks or months before someone takes a drink again. You bet. So um, the, when she talks about that, that's a very, very true part of a lot of, a lot of sex offenders is mm -hmm. they are fantasizing and rehearsing and some of them are physically doing it um, mm -hmm. before they actually find a victim. And um, I don't know if I'm directly answering your question, but that's a really common thing that we see as far as profiling right and so yeah. this guy on his own obviously not seeing a therapist right. and not not um have not having been arrested or convicted of anything prior so this mm -hmm. is just this is him and if you um in the book it goes into uh further about his history and how he had had fantasies of uh sadism from a pretty young age mm -hmm. and um tried to fight it off yeah. it was I, I was struck in the book by um what we know about this kind of offender and how it develops mm -hmm. and the fact that my experience and you have a ton more experience than i with this particular um, kind of person or this particular offense but what i do know is that often 
um, my limited experience with um, this type of person is that they're often trying to fight it off for a long time. Yeah, sometimes. I mean, I saw both. Yeah. You know, I, I, it's really interesting. Maybe we'll do an episode at some point on the different profiles and the different types of offenders because mm-hmm. there are those who have been traumatized themselves and um, definitely would come into treatment saying, I don't want this anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't want to act on this anymore and I don't want to feel this and I've been fighting. And then you have the more psychopathological ones who really loved it. Yeah, this was like when he was younger. Cause, yeah. uh, and, and I hear what you're saying. Obviously, they're going to be different yeah. ways to go. And this is sort of when he was younger and he was in the army and it was before the army actually and he was having these fantasies and he it was I was more riffing off of what you said about fantasies he was yeah. having these fantasies and trying to fight them and trying to fight kind of like Dahmer right yeah. we, we, we yeah. talked about that with Dahmer just trying to fight them off like mm-hmm. knowing knowing it's not okay mm-hmm. and knowing that they're fighting something off like that's knowledge in and of itself right, right. I met you know there's some people that don't fight it off at all and they start doing whatever they're going to do at a very young age. Well, and w- when we talk about Richard Ramirez this winter, we'll get into that where okay. he, I mean, he's a perfect example of someone who wasn't very apologetic for his fantasies. Yeah, no, yeah. I've seen some of his interviews mm-hmm. and no, doesn't look apologetic at all. But generally, yeah, you will, if you go back in their history, they'll be able to talk about how these fantasies, Ted Bundy, it came up mm-hmm. with him too, how they started very early. Yeah, they started early. And in this particular case, at least in the book, um, they talk about how he was, at least at a young age, was fighting it off. And then, of course, he was figuring out how to, he was trying to figure out how to get the fantasies realized without, you know, going full bore. Yeah, without having, you know, so there was these stages. And Mm -hmm. I, you see that, I mean, in every uh, case that we've, every, um, sorry, every person that we've sort of deep dived into their psychology, you sort of, you really just see the evolution. And I think this is why child psychologists or psychologists or therapists who work with youth, it's really important to talk about sexuality during adolescence, because this is the time where this stuff really becomes branded and becomes part of the persona. This is what I've experienced anyway. So if we're not having healthy discussions with teenagers about sexuality, it can go unnoticed because if they don't feel like that's an appropriate place to talk about these things. And we we had this discussion a few episodes ago when we weren't talking about teens, but we were t- talking about helping people with different, um, you know, maladaptive sexual addictions, compulsions, Mm -hmm. whatever, having a place to discuss them without being penalized if they haven't had a victim, let them talk about it so we don't have victims. Yeah, it's super important. Oh my God, it's so important. I mean, I've just, in the last year, I've several cases flooded to mind of, Mm -hmm. you know, kids who are acting out sexually, uh, they, they enter the system or they come into my view line and they're acting out sexually and they've got these behaviors and, you know, they're markers, you know, as a clinician, you kind of go, okay. Or as a clinician that's well-versed in this arena, it's like, all right, so I see a few markers. We can, we can work with this, but we got to get some containment and mm-hmm. some support. And then, you know, having workers talking to them and then having those kids be honest about, 
you know, uh, porn or mm-hmm. uh, sending naked pictures or some of the things that we see in kids. And then knowing the difference between that in a kind of an average teenager way and that in a developing, possibly sex offending fantasy way. Right. Which is kind of what you were talking about earlier is that there's a difference between a client telling you a story or, um, you know, maybe an analytic fantasy about something and indulging that client in their fantasy and rehearsal. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly very, it's a very specific thing. And that's, I think what Kathy's talking about, about how, if you're not trained specifically in this, it'd be good to refer out because, because it's not an area you want to get caught up in if you don't know. Well, yeah. And I think that there's a, a huge movement towards, you know, let's not pathologize any sort of sexual fantasy and it's like um okay Mm. well if you haven't worked on my side yeah i'm going to alarm you to that because until (laughs) you've read police reports of really 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 just disturbing things until you've dipped your foot in that pool it's really easy to go well let's not pathologize that thought and i think that's overcorrecting. i think sometimes it's okay to go um that's not healthy Mm-hmm. That actually could become very dangerous. Yeah, I mean, pathology, the word pathologize has been pathologized. That's right. <laughs> you got to use the word pathology. It's just Shannon like- just got meta. <laughs> I totally did. It's like um, I talk a lot about manipulating for good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I joke about that yeah. with uh, some of the people that I supervise. That's because, our work. Because manipulation has, you know, a very bad rap. Um, that word. And yes, of course, if you look it up in the dictionary, it's a negative thing, like manipulating for manipulative purposes. But, you know, manipulating situations for positive gain is also a thing. Little tangent for you. Um, I wanted to play this other clip. I found this other clip that was interesting to me. It's a couple, it's just a couple minutes and it's an FBI uh, special agent, uh, using his experience hunting serial killers to study the patterns of uh, Mark O'Leary, who's the gentleman, uh, I hate using that word gentleman, sorry, the serial rapist, that's just one of my colloquial words I used a lot, not a gentleman, in my opinion, the serial rapist in this case, and he talks about him, and what you're going to hear too is a little bit of pretty bad audio that this 48 hours special uh, weaves in from Mark O'Leary himself that was captured in uh, interviews. But it's that really bad audio that comes through, you know, the speakers in the interrogation room or whatever. So you'll hear that too. But um, this is him talking a little bit about Mark O'Leary. Well, you could tell from Mark O'Leary's series that he was disciplined. He waited a long time in between crimes. He went to different jurisdictions. He chose different types of victims. So he was a pretty complicated person to try to figure out when is the next one going to happen and where is it going to happen. Was there anything that served you well from your experience with searching for serial killers that applied to this case then? Yes, that they have some sort of need inside them that won't let them stop. I was able to throw him a compliment to say, it seemed like you've dated a lot of women and you don't have trouble with women. And he liked that compliment. He would tell the victims that he had been watching them from their window, that he knew their class schedule, giving them safety tips on how they don't lock their doors and windows. He's big on teaching. 
he is. He decided to teach me during my interview as well. Human beings are, you know, dual by nature. I realized early on that, you know, I was the enemy and that I had to keep it bottled up. And I think that's, you know, ultimately that was the wrong thing to do. Any type of inert force is inherently unstable. So he would describe it as a monster, a cycle, or a pendulum. It just gave me a, a deeper look into people like him, that he was able to sit outside and analyze Mark O'Leary on one side, monster on the other, and kind of play referee in between the two. He felt badly for his victims in one sense, but not badly enough to stop doing it. Mm -hmm and he couldn't help himself from doing this over and over again. Once you met him and you spent those four hours with him, how would you describe Mark O'Leary? Uh, sadistic and intelligent, I would say, were the, probably the two words that would come. Um, so I find that interesting because, you know, sadistic and intelligent, I mean, I think that's a theme in a lot of the people we talk about here mm -hmm. on the show and i also you know he refers to the compulsion that he couldn't you know he felt he couldn't stop it was mm -hmm. something he couldn't stop until he got caught we talk a lot about that as mm -hmm. well that's a commonality like we talk a lot about the differences i think between the different people that we talk about in the different cases and stories and even our discussions around horror films it's like there's lots of similarities and the yep. you know the different things that we see um, and the differences between the different things that we see. But that's certainly a commonality, I think, that we see a lot is the compulsive uh, piece. Mm -hmm. No matter whether that's long tail stalking compulsion yeah. or killing compulsion or fit killing, you know, like Bundy, you know, devolving and then slaughtering a bunch of people and then yeah. taking a break. And then yeah. like even that is a compulsory pattern. Uh, the other interesting thing I thought for me um, was him saying, uh, you know, that that he, he was a teacher that Leary liked to teach you and talk. But, you know, I don't I don't see it that way. I don't. I, sure. OK, so he wants to teach you something. But that's what narcissists do. I was just about to say that was so <laughs> self-fulfilling. Yeah. yeah. And so they're not going to use psychological language, obviously. An FBI no. special agent isn't going to see it that way. He sees it as like this guy's trying to teach me something. But I see. I see him being a narcissist, and I also see him, uh, you know, they, they kind of referred to him and how he would tell them, you know, hey, one of his key things is he told almost every victim, hey, lock your door next time. That was like his parting word. And for me, that's not about teaching or what have you. That's cruelty. Yep. I agree. It's almost, yes, it's tormenting. <laughs> it's tormenting. So all the way through, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, I know too, too much about these rape cases now that I've watched this and read the book mm -hmm. and all this. It's really, I need to move away. Can we talk about a horror film at some time soon? Um, but um, what I know is that during the rapes, he would say all kinds of different things like that. Mm -hmm. Um and you know what you really should do uh, and that's just that it's cruel and it's narcissistic that's it's, how i i took it was yeah. it was more tormenting yeah you know, yeah you messed up and this is what happened to you and i did this to you you know like i wouldn't have chosen you if you hadn't locked your yeah. if you hadn't left your thing unlocked but what we know about him is that he would stalk them for months right it had nothing to do with their door being unlocked no. yes agreed he wouldn't have been able to get in if the door was locked and what he's saying to them is i wouldn't have tried harder and and you can't 
I don't. I don't. Also, don't like that message of like. I know he, they're. He's caring for them. Mm-hmm. It's a really mixed, exactly. fucked up message because there's nothing about his behavior or his sadism or anything that makes him genuinely protective. Or he never would have done what he did in the first. Yeah. Place. No. I mean, I think this. This. Um. Um. I'm sure he's excellent at his job, but he's. I think that the special agent is misspeaking in this moment, saying you know. Well, he cared about him in a way. No. He tried to teach him stuff. Well, no. No, he did not. He shamed them. He tormented <coughs> them. Yeah. What yeah. looks like caring and teaching is not. Well, and abuse looks like that, too. Exactly. And so, it's, so. I just think it kind of wraps up, like, yeah. what we're talking about here in that um, even an, a specialist in, in part of our, in part of the world, you know, a special agent can be... Um, well, one could possibly misspeak in an interview, whatever, but could also just be, well, it speaks to what you were saying about the law and how people on the side of law, which is, you know, FBI, police, um, Look at the judges, you know, lawyers, et cetera, can, can not fully sometimes understand that behavior isn't what it is, like just on the surface. And I think that idea is wrapped up in what he said in a way. I think that's all I got on this. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and do our what the hell segment for the week. We'll be right back. We're back. This is Tara talk with Shannon and Kathy. We're going to do our what the hell segment. This is a segment where Kathy and I independently find a ridiculous criminal. Basically, these are the kinds of words I search when I go to find my what the hell segment. It's like stupid criminals, funniest crimes. <laughs> like these are the so dumb. <laughs> and you guys don't even get to really see the pictures of what these people look like. They're freaking hilarious. It's awful. One day we'll have a website and we could put wing- links up, but that is not in our in our reality right now. Maybe one day we'll do that. Uh, oh, actually, I could post them on the Twitter. I could always link them on the twi- on the tweeting, true. on the twittering. So my story is this. Uh, it's it goes by pretty quickly, so I'm gonna be clear. So the title of the story is "Ohio Boy Comes Home to Find Halls Decked, Strung Out Stranger Watching Television." Okay. So mine is a Christmas story. <laughs> Okay, so um, Terry Trent is 44, and he has been charged with burglary after breaking into a family's home and putting up Christmas decorations. So cops in Vandalia, north of Dayton, Ohio, um, say that Terry was high on the designer drug bath salts when he broke into a family's home. (coughs) Sorry, I'm going to (coughs) cough because I started to laugh. Um, He broke into a family's home and he put up Christmas decorations and then plopped down on the couch to watch television and then stayed there until the family came home. Just saying. If you guys don't know what bath salts are, (laughs) there's something that you snort. So he's just chilling. He puts up the Christmas decorations. Oh my God. They're recreational designer drugs, basically, if you don't know what. um, How did he know where the Christmas decorations were? I'm I, I I have so many questions because 
like were the decorations just sitting out and they hadn't been put up yet or did he go find decorations? I don't know. And so I'm high on bath salts and I'm hallucinating or something and I walk into a home again with the don't with the lock your door scenario. Yeah. Like um lock it up. Walk walked into a open door most Jesus. likely. Um people trust way too easily. And was real high and probably doesn't even remember that he did it. No. Until he's, you know, in jail. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Terry. Terry Trent. Terry, thanks. 44. Thanks for letting us, <coughs> thanks for entertaining us for that moment. Yeah. Um, this one's pretty dumb and entertaining too. Cool. And, it's, and it, there's a lot of irony around it. <laughs> Two young women escape jail and they get arrested at an escape game. Okay, what? Okay. You know escape rooms? <laughs> I do. Okay. Two women, they look like no older than 19, mm -hmm. escaped from jail in Alberta, Canada. They were apparently very confident in their abilities that they headed to an escape room less than 24 hours later. Like, who was like, let's get out of jail and go do an escape room? You know what I hear? I hear mm. addiction. Yeah. They got they got so high off of escaping. They're like, let's, let's do some more escaping. Escape. <laughs> so another escape proved impossible, however, when police officers surprised them within minutes. So they go into the of course the escape did. room, right? <laughs> yeah. Around um they enter the business around eight thirty at night, ask some questions about the facility's rooms. <laughs> they were taken in there while I was holding that conversation with them. We kind of turned only to find the halfway full of five police officers. This is one of the owners. Okay. Then they were arrested immediately, and that was the end of the conversation. So while his <laughs> wife was showing the women the room, the police officer shows up acting on a tip from a member of the public who'd recognize them. And then, you know, I mean, wow. What the hell? What the hell, man? These people. Merry Christmas, you guys. Yeah, Merry, Merry, well, Merry fucking Christmas is kind of what too. came to mind right then. Yeah. Um, we very much appreciate your listenership, and please tune in for Friday's show. And next week, we're going to do some top villains. We're going to have a little fun. Our lists. We're going to. It's a list show. Yeah, we decide, you know, you always do a list show at the end of the year. That's what people do. So I'm like, eh. Let's do an interesting list. And so we decided to do the list of our favorite villains. And they can be real <laughs> or fiction. True. So thank you. This is Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow. <laughs>